I need you to listen to this for me. Like we're friends, and and I feel like this could really help you if you listen to this podcast episode. She read some Harry Potter fan fiction, and that's not that's not clean stuff. I know what goes on on those websites. Like they'll give somebody like a three piece suit and a pocket watch or something, and you're like, what do you mean? This is his new look. How could that be his new look? You know, someone turns a corner to their cat, and the cat says, "Well, ha!" Like a southern gentleman, and I love that. Hello, and welcome to People You May Know. Today, my guest is Josh, and we actually recorded this episode a couple months ago, and I have just not gotten around to editing it, which you now know I don't even hardly edit these things anymore. So it's it's really no excuse for it, but I was using an old laptop to edit stuff. So you know how that goes where every single file you open takes friggin' five minutes to get there. And then with everything in Audacity, it just, it just takes a long time. And what I'm saying is you really should feel sorry for me. This has been hard. It's been a, it's been a journey, but you know, I assume that Josh thinks I haven't posted it yet because it's just the worst episode I've ever recorded and I didn't want to make him like not think that was true you know because holding like the power of someone's like self-esteem in your hands it feels good (laughs) I'm not gonna lie it feels good so you know let him think what he wants it's fun So one of the things that happened on this episode is that we started browsing the NBC store and I honestly, I've not re-listened to this. I don't know how much we're clicking and clacking, okay? But I, I feel like we do a pretty good job of talking through it and and we did end up buying each other things. So I'm going to post photos of those. I like silly gifts are the best. They're the best. I have received so many funny gifts from friends, you know, seven boxes of Rice Krispie Treat cereal. Fantastic. A a t-shirt, custom made t-shirt that says like best friends club, super best friends club, other custom shirts for podcasts we like. I mean, I just so many amazing, funny little gifts from friends. And I've gotten a gift from Josh before. Um, Aside from these wonderful NBC gifts, he once gave me a gift for Christmas. He, He got me in Secret Santa. It's not like he's just so generous. I don't want you listening to this being like, oh my God, that's her guest who's just so generous. No. Okay, no, he's fine. He's regular levels of generous. So he got me for a secret Santa and he gave me like a little like E.T. pin and like maybe like a weird movie. I literally, okay, I don't remember. Let's just be clear. Yes, I love when people give me gifts and fantastic. They mean a lot to me. Do I remember what they are later? No, but it's the excitement of getting something. And again, the power of having something knowing that this person wasted their goddamn time on me wow it's a rush i love it 
So I really hope you enjoy the episode and I hope that you will go to the NBC store yourself and just support them. You know what I mean? Like give some support because it's really, it's messed up to be watching these shows and talking about these shows constantly with your friends and then like not giving back. NBC gives you so much. You need to give back to NBC. Welcome to the show. Okay, so we are going to start with a game. Which is worse, podcast edition? <laughs> I, I can handle it. <laughs> okay. So which is worse, a long ad-libbed ad read or interrupting the guest to read the ad? So just to be clear, just so you know exactly what I mean. First, when I say the long ad-libbed ad read, it's the thing where podcast hosts think that the ad feels more natural and maybe enjoyable to the listener because they're just going, you know what, man, I tell you, I've, I've been using this uh, green apron, man, or blue apron. And it is, I mean, it's changed my life. I don't know. How do you feel about it? Ask their co-hosts. And they just, yeah. and they go on for maybe two minutes having a natural conversation about Blue Apron, right? That's because that's way, that way it's part of the content and you want to. Exactly. Exactly. And then the other type, interrupting the guest to read the ad, it's when they have a guest on like this and then I just go, and just one moment, Josh, before we continue here, I do have <laughs> yeah. to give a shout out to Blue Apron. They are spots. So which of those feels worse? Oh, I think the, um, the ad-libbed ad by far. I don't even, I think. Oh, really? By far. Yeah. I I don't even mind, like, if they, I don't know, it depends on the show. I listen to, like, enough different types of shows. On, like, a sports show, if it's it's structured into segments and everyone's pretty boring anyway, and the guest came with, like, a specific thing to say, then you just tell them, like, hold that thought, and then they just, you know, you go to cut to ad, and then they return, and maybe it's edited anyway, like, on sports shows, because it's, like, ESPN or whatever, some big company, but those same highly produced shows, not to mention all the alt comedy shows, love to do like, here's 30 seconds where the host tells you their, like ad-libs their experience with this cola, mm-hmm. like Mountain Dew. <laughs> On the big shows, they're now doing like these huge oh, multinational God. companies, you know? On comedy shows, it's still mostly like Casper or like- yeah. Look, that's really funny to imagine someone being like, you know, Mountain Dew, this stuff is good. I'm, it's crisp. I'm it's like flavorful. Wow. Most of the shows you listen to haven't yet done those huge multinationals because you do like cool shows. I do mostly the comedy shows, but do you remember when very early on yes. when the podcast had ads, they had like Pepsi. And they had a like a professionally recorded radio ad for a little while in Earwolf. Yes, and like the plugging yes. sound, the can opening sound. I I really yeah I really don't want to hear the ad from the company itself. That's rarely good, but it is hard to find that balance where the host is giving the ad, but it's not completely like pathetic that they're just like a shill for this company or whatever. You know, I don't think like anyone makes that work i know that like on hollywood handbook i do listen to like all the ads because that really is that works for me that's only because like Mm -hmm. i'm an idiot who loves that show like you (laughs) like (laughs) like, be friends with them 
So it's like, oh, my friends are talking to me. They have to get paid too. Yeah, and that and that can help when they try to make maybe a joke involved with the ad or I don't know. I even sometimes like the sincere ones, I guess. If I really feel like you're telling me what you think about the product, I might be somewhat interested. But I just hate that they tend to go on for minutes when they do that. But I also really, I really hate both of these. I really hate when the host interrupts the guest to go into the ad. Also because on one show I listen to, Allison Rosen is your new best friend, which I don't generally listen to because it does annoy me almost nonstop. But you know, you listen to some of those anyway. I don't know why. But <laughs> so on that one, she tells the people like, hold on. And then she reads the ad in front of the guest. You know, they're oh. there for it. Yeah. That's Whereas on, no, it's not good. And often it's, it's really awkward. I feel like depending on what the person's talking about. And then um, on why won't you date me with Nicole Byer? She'll just interrupt the guest, like, hold on, we need to go to a commercial. But then the commercial is pre-recorded. Yeah. So it's like, why did they need to no, stop talking when you just I, That's what I thought you meant. Because like, I think that's kind of, um, I don't know what that's about. Maybe like a throwback to like real shows, like TV shows and radio shows to give us that mm-hmm. sense of like a seamless whole yeah now a word from our sponsor or whatever they, do, they just like sit there for like a second and then resume their <laughs> we're back like okay you guys didn't really need to take a break maybe but <laughs> reading in front of the guests seems insane to me and like so disrespectful yes. i totally agree That's really crazy. weird yeah okay which is worse a celebrity guesting on a podcast or a celebrity hosting a podcast? Hosting. Gotta be just because it's more of that person. <laughs> we, we all know both are bad. Um, like I was going to say, you know, I just heard an ad for Rob Lowe's new podcast for some reason. Oh, Have you heard that? Like, I mean, it's no, like, I'm no longer surprised when anyone has a podcast, of course. Yeah. But um, it's always a bit depressing. Like, I don't know who lists, well, who's the audience for, like, yet another, like, pretty major A-list celebrity having a podcast. And they always say, like, we'll take a deep dive or really get into <laughs> Or, like, you know, we really talk about some important stuff. Yes, or and then they have, like, huge guests. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, totally. And they say, like, oh, this is a side of them you may not have seen before. Oh my God. I can't imagine that Rob Lowe is like such a gifted interviewer. Yeah, I don't know. What I will say, uh, I remember Sean Clements saying that, you know, he worked with Rob Lowe on whatever that like lawyer show was or whatever, and that he was great and a great storyteller and he read his book and it was amazing. So maybe Rob Lowe has an okay. I, I mean, it does to me, the celebrity hosted podcast all depends on if they have a good personality. Cause I, I listened to Justin Long's podcast and I do like his what? personality. I listened to Anna Ferris's podcast. Oh, I don't really love her personality. Honestly, she has horrific advice, horrific, but I like advice shows. So, you know, it's kind yeah. of fun. But I then I listened to what? I think you've mentioned Anna Ferris's show before, but I yes, I've listened to it a lot. 
I just, I love, I love advice shows. I can't, even when they're bad, I'm like, but I like thinking of my answers. So I don't care if yours are bad. (laughs) (laughs) I also once listened to, the fuck is his name? Michael Rosenbaum has a podcast. He was from not two guys, a girl on a pizza place. He was from Zoe Duncan, Jack and Jane. So, and Smallville. What is that even? (laughs) What is that even? A show that I don't, it was probably on for a season. And somehow it was like during a part of my life where it makes, it feels important when I look back. (laughs) I'm looking at it now. It just is completely (laughs) unfamiliar. It's not even like now that I've seen the poster, it rings a bell. It's like, I don't know who any of these people are. Oh, it's you know what? It might have been. Was it the WB? Uh, let's see. Yeah, it looks like. Because I feel like I was big into WB for a while. So that may have been just anything that was on there I would watch. I don't remember it being good, I will say. Um, I don't remember it being bad either. <laughs> but it's not yeah. like I'm like, oh my God, it was great. So I'm not it recommending it. Like, it ran for like six months between wow oh no wait a year and a half sorry i read this wrong january 17th 1999 and june 11 2000 so like 18 months but insane that you remember i guess it's very typical of you it is it is and in reality i probably only watched it six months or less i mean i really probably didn't stick with it the whole way through but still it feels important in my memory but his podcast was terrible um he's not likable but one thing came up at one point that was very interesting he was talking about his parents and he said you know he's really not close with his mom his mom's got all these issues he's like my mom was a a sports interviewer and she uh i think he said she would she would cheat on my dad with the sports guys and he said well It was never like confirmed that that happened, but that's like what my dad said. And then he said, and the only reason she even had that job was because she wanted to get with the sports players. So this guy who's like in his forties is still believing the narrative that his dad told him about his mom. That's clearly a psycho jealous (laughs) husband being like she only even wants to work in sports if she could fuck these guys you know like oh it was that's so heavy and sad yeah and it's like you've hated your mom like your whole life because your dad like poisoned you against her you know and then the way you introduce her to like thousands (laughs) of fans or whatever i was gonna say like the millions but no absolutely not <laughs> yeah, who knows how many people are listening to well, like, michael Rose you introduce her to the public by telling these like very intimate like yes that's, so about your mom. that's so true do they all need to know that even if I it were true like ugh. do you think that sometimes like um because of what podcasts are and everyone always says the same stuff like it's so intimate. Like you're inviting these people into your ears and like, that's Mm -hmm. what people used to say in the early days of like the explosion, you know, of Marin. And then I guess like serial that like, this is a unique media where it's an intimate thing. Do you think Uh because of the Marin thing and the, you made it, uh, you made it weird thing. Yeah. You, they have like this obligation to immediately open up. You know what I mean? Like, you think that new, yeah. like, they have to do that? 
I think that could be true that people think you want their like heart like cracked open or something this like they want a deep dive and maybe that's how they think they're gonna keep people interested or maybe a lot of people also just naturally have that like desire to overshare and they've never had an audience before so it's like you can get more attention the more you share I don't know that's interesting though I do think like that is a thing have you ever done like um a team building workshop or even camp or I like teach for India. Like the, the training is like super concentrated, like teach for America. Mm. It's like six weeks teacher training. And it's all about like personal development and learning to be a teacher. And some of it is very good, even though it gets criticized for not being enough learning how to be a mm-hmm. teacher. But one thing they do is this contrived um, getting to know you thing where it's like, you have to tell your group like a big secret about yourself. And that, and it's like, that's what they tell you, you know? And it's like the most um, forced, like rapid intimacy thing, but it kind of works though. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> once you do it, it is kind of like, yeah, well, I have opened up to these people. Yeah, that's a, that's um, that's a good point that even when it's forced intimacy, it does kind of work. And I think that's what a lot of those big, workshops are like the ones that it say they're going to like change your life, like Tony Robbins and stuff like that. Um, I just talked to someone recently who went to a couple of those sorts of seminars, you know, paid hundreds of dollars. And one of the things she told me that happened there was that you're sitting at a table with people and they do tell you, you know, open up about different things, stuff like that, like share your secrets with these like four people. So then it's like, one guy said he was molested when he was five and you know and there's like i mean some deep things people are wanting to share oh yeah that forced intimacy stuff i will just add to that um that's also what cults do of course oh like i think that's what scientology kind of is where it's like you contrive this like opening up and then this person has made themselves vulnerable to you and they feel like yeah. attached to you somehow. <laughs> yeah. Like, so, and I mean, that's what I feel like I do to people often, or at least I feel like maybe I do it a little <laughs> less. I don't ask people like deep, that deep of questions anymore, but I used to always be like, you know, tell me like the worst thing that's ever happened to you and all that kind of stuff, like right away, because I, I don't really care for that small talk part. Like I like to just know somebody already. I don't really want to be like, well, we'll see how this goes, you know? And yeah. Well, in your book, you kind of wrote about this exact kind of shit a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. Kind of benefits (laughs) of meeting someone in a place where it's, you're comfortable being vulnerable immediately, like online, as opposed to what you, people always say is more genuine real life. As you point out, like that's far less genuine in some ways. Yes, I really think it is. And I think people don't realize how much of themselves they're hiding a lot of the time. Uh, I don't know if you watched that reality show that was on Netflix, Love is Blind. No, but I know it is, of course. <laughs> So yeah, so it's like these people are in separate rooms, they can't see each other, but they're going on these little like blind dates where they just get to talk through the doors. And then if you like people more, you get to talk to them more. And people on that show fell in love hard. They fell in love hard from talking. Yes, 
I really do. I believe some of them, because there were only maybe three or something that were like deeply like we love each other. And I believe not necessarily that, wow, you have a strong like love with this person, but more that you've never been truly open with anyone in your life. So now that you've done that and been accepted, you have a really strong bond with this person. And, right. it, you know, yeah. it feels like love, which, it, it, you know, it could be. I don't, I don't know. But for pretty much every couple, once they actually met and saw each other, then they started. So for some of the people, it was like, you're not as attractive as I expected. So then that got involved. I gotta watch this but, now, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But for other people... Um, one guy, his personality just completely changed because you could see his insecurities were involved when he talks to a person face to face, he becomes aggressive, kind of mean. He does that nagging thing people do like to build himself up. He says rude comments. He was just completely different. And it was really kind of sad to see the relationship fall apart in a way like he didn't even know that he was doing that. That's amazing. That's a perfect case study. Did you mention that in the book? Because I haven't read more than the first like quarter. No. Okay. <laughs> that's like a case study. Yeah, that's true. That's exactly your point. Yeah, I never really thought about that until you brought it up. But of course it is true. I mean, I've always said that like there's, it's not different. Like all that stuff about um, online dating, to me it always seemed exactly as difficult as whatever kind of dating. <laughs> like no less or more. But it is kind of true that it is even more genuine when you're like, we're also conditioned. I think maybe us in particular, who are friends, um, you and I are friends online, mm-hmm. right? So like we're pre-selected, we're self-selecting to be people who meet, can meet and make friends online. Yeah. But I do think that like our whole generation is so conditioned to communicate this way. Being on like AIM when you're like 11 or whatever. Yes. Uh, I think it like makes your brain okay with it. Like you're sitting in your room talking so like intimately with your friends and even strangers from such an early age. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, you know, I've worked with some kids who they maybe are feeling suicidal and the only people they tell are their online friends And that's like how their parents find out or the online friends ends up calling like the police to help them. But those are the only people they truly feel comfortable with, you know? insane. Whoa, that's an amazing thing. I was wondering about that because like my former students are like now in eighth or ninth, I guess, grade. And they're like, they're, you know this, like they're from pretty poor families, but not like living on the street. They're like mm-hmm. in this Indian city, maybe their dad drives an auto rickshaw and their mom stays at home. And they live in like, usually in tough neighborhoods or slums, but like in a, they have what they need and stuff. And mm-hmm. they even, of course, everyone has phones. Everyone has phones. So the kids are okay. all like used to technology in a way that um, is kind of even more of a stark difference between them and the previous generations than it was for us compared to our parents. Because mm-hmm. it's changing so fast, I think. And so, like, yeah. my, my students are, like, friending me on Instagram. <laughs> and, of course, talking to each other. And every once in a while, I get, like, caught up in, like, a middle school um, drama still. <laughs> oh, God. And it's pretty toxic, man. They're really vulnerable. Yeah. 
Um, and so it does freak me out, but it's interesting that like that cuts both ways because yeah, maybe they're forming bonds over these like communication platforms. If they're telling people that they're suicidal and they're not telling the parents, mm-hmm. that makes me like hopeful. Yeah, I know. I it is like there's so much positive to like having your friends always available for you, especially for a kid who maybe is really lonely or their parents are shitty or whatever, being able to go on your Xbox and just talk to your friends can definitely be really positive. But there's like so many negatives where then maybe the kid who wants to bully you at school, they can also bully you at home They're on social media and they can have access to you too. Or a lot of the kids, I haven't seen as many problems with phones, but with the video games, Kids are so absolutely obsessed and it creates a lot of like anger and like telling the kids to stop playing the game. It's like, whoa, like the parent, I just feel like it brings up a lot in kids for some reason. I don't know. It brings out a lot of anger. And so many kids I talk to all (laughs) say, uh, you know, when do you feel upset or, or tell me about a time when you were angry. And so many of them, the only times they can come up with were times where they were playing the game. And I'm like, I really don't even care to hear about when you got mad playing the game. That's (laughs) not what you were looking for. No, not at all. But I don't know. It's like, maybe that is where a lot of it comes from. Cause even as an adult, when I play certain games, Mm -hmm. I become furious you know how they're just like certain things that that make you want to kill someone and and it doesn't have to just be games another thing that recently made me want to scream was like carrying like my dinner and the fork like kept falling off the plate like on the way you know it just like wouldn't balance and it like brought up that internal rage that's like oh my god um so usually it's like you mean not genuinely you normally it is very stupid little things that will make me feel furious and and it's very rare. So I definitely notice when it happens and I'm like, what is it about this that is infuriating? But that'll happen with games too. Just certain games bring that out. And I'd be very curious to know what that is and if it's the same for kids or if it's the same for people in general, because we, we got to figure something out with this shit. <laughs> for real. I do know, like, my students, even though, of course, they don't have, like, consults for the TV, the the fact is, like, they still have access to so much media suddenly mm-hmm. because of internet and phones. It's so trite to even make this observation because we all have been making this <laughs> observation, like, phones, phones. But uh, I still run into Americans who are surprised that, like, poor kids in India have phones. But, like, of course they do. Phones are everywhere. Everyone has a phone. And there's this new thing of, like, kids getting stuck on video games which like, mm-hmm. was already a thing for, I think, yours and my generation yeah. when we were kids, but not for these kids' families because mm-hmm. they didn't have consoles in the 90s or whatever. Um, so this might be the first generation of this demographic in India who's like actually dealing with this, like screen addiction. And like mm-hmm. one of the things that these kids do is they play like those free-to-play mobile games, of course, because okay. those are the ones that are accessible they don't have to buy anything and those are the most toxic ones right like the ones that have all the worst design like tricks to get you uh-huh. and make you keep clicking 
um, and their little soft brains just like get stuck. I mean, it's amazing to watch. It's a bummer. Yeah. And I feel so old when I'm complaining about it as a teacher. Like, <laughs> man. Yeah, it was weird to may, like see that happening in real time. Yeah, and I, I was just thinking, because I was reading a book where someone was talking about that same sort of idea of just, it's, you know, a bummer to see kids doing this. And I was like, you know, I, I really want to read books from these kids in 20 years or whatever, though, and see, was it terrible? Like when they look back, are they going, gosh, this really messed me up? Or are they saying, no, it's just as valid as, you know, reading a book or doing any other activity like I got this out of it and I got this out of it and, it helped, you know, where I'd go, oh, okay, yeah. Because I mean, things change so much that I'm really, I'm positive when books first came out, yeah. there were, there was a lot of like, why do you have to be escaping? Why do you have to be reading a book? You know, but at this point, totally. like that's one of the few like pure activities, right. you know? <laughs> that's right. You're right, of course. And that's what I always say when people, I, I don't think like, very many young people actually believe that like video games are toxic or whatever. I think mm -hmm. I recently like found a tweet and, and linked it in chat about um, someone saying like these parents were really mad that their son was playing so much Xbox while in quarantine. And the oh, yeah. headline of like a New York Times article or like the, the lead of the article <laughs> was like this dad saying like, I failed you as a son. This like seemingly <laughs> otherwise normal middle-class family, the kids playing games while in quarantine. And that is so, like, we know that's over the top. But it's so <laughs> yeah. stupid that I'm, like, agonizing about it. But I think there are levels, like, yeah. cynical mobile games. Like, there's something so cynical about how they manipulate you to, like, do microtransactions, you know? And mm -hmm. there's no redeeming. It's not one person's artistic vision. Like, there's no story. It's not, like, yeah. Dark Souls, which is, like, a work of art with one person's vision, like a movie. Yeah. This is like lowest common denominator stuff. So I think there's something to it. Yeah. whine about it. But I did but, but at the same time, like one of the earliest games are like card games. And so someone could play solitaire over and over and over, which like I wouldn't necessarily recommend either. But is it maybe similar to that where like there's kind of an addictive quality to that too? And is it worse if you're, you know, eating like fruit, fruit ninja or any of those sorts of like candy crush? That, I don't know. Very old, but I guess fruit ninja. Yeah, is fruit ninja's Xbox. Okay, right. Yeah. I played it at Disneyland. What was that for? I don't know. But uh, I just think we we really don't know. We do not know the impact yeah. of these things. So it's always easy to speculate whatever the new generation is doing is worse and it's going to break them. But I mean, I think people probably thought that in the beginning of the internet, and I do remember being completely obsessed with talking to people online. And like, once I was on the computer, it was like hours past mm -hmm. like minutes, you know, and it was just like, this is all I ever want to do. But was there legitimacy to that? Like, I don't know. I think so. <laughs> I have a, like, um, you know, like a Mark Maron style, like, memory to share of, of like, an embarrassing Ooh. moment of my childhood directly relevant. You know, those, like, viral <laughs> videos of, like, kids screaming at their parents because they take their games away or whatever. It's, like, a whole genre of, like, viral videos. 
But I have a couple of moments like that in my own childhood, or at least one that I remember. Like, being way too old to be this upset. I was playing Warcraft 2, the, like, real-time strategy game where the orcs say, like, work, work, and stuff like that. Hmm. Um, <laughs> I had It was so hard for me at that age. I must have been, like, 10 or maybe something like that. And it was so hard. So, like, I was saving my progress. I felt so good. And I lost the game somehow. Like, the file got corrupted. And I got mm. so mad at my mom, I think. And which mm. was, like, a big thing for me. Like, looking back, it stands out as a very embarrassing and kind of pathetic moment, you know? Like, something that I'm ashamed of. Because mm-hmm. it was, like, those videos of kids, like, weeping when their parents take their, like, games away. But um, was it your mom's fault? Do you feel like you you thought it was just like she was there? I think it was pure projection on my part. I think I just needed something to lash out about. Yeah. And like, how fucked up is that? Like, it does feel insane in retrospect. And it's the memory that is like a touchstone memory for me when whenever we talk about this kind of stuff. Because like, see, but if you imagine it as something other than video games, it becomes like completely relatable you know, and completely understandable. So like, imagine you were typing an essay and then it got deleted. You would be pissed, right? I mean, of course it would be like, oh my God, you'd be like devastated. I put all this work in and it's gone. So immediately like comparing it to that helps. But then it's also, it's not good the way that we take our anger out on other people who aren't responsible, but that is also incredibly common Um, I definitely remember like playing video games. If I had a cat on my lap and then I lost, I'd be like, this is your fault (laughs) for being here. You mean like a part of you seriously kind of had a moment deep down of being frustrated at the cat, not just pretend fun, like irony. No, no. And I have, this is like the stupidest version of that. Once I was in my bedroom and I stubbed my toe and it hurt really bad. And my brain immediately went to being mad at my boyfriend at the time. And then I was, and then in my head, I went, oh my God, he's not even in the room. He didn't move the bed or anything. There's literally no way it's his fault. So then I just kind of like that brought my attention more to oh, that's my go-to is find someone to blame for a feeling I have, but especially anger. So I think you have to, you know, learn how to not do that. But even adults do that shit, you know? Right. And I think you're right in saying, like, this happens. It doesn't, it's not necessarily, like, about video games. Like, that story was probably about, like, my own problems as a kid (laughs) unrelated to video games. (laughs) But it's weird how, like, the media narrative about, like, warning about video games has reached... Mm -hmm has been with me for so long that I do think like, oh, it must be Warcraft 2's fault that I was such a fucked up little whiner. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's really just a a very normal thing. Like kids do not know how to handle their emotions. And that's probably the main thing that it was, you know, I mean, like I said, even adults don't, but kids really don't. They, (laughs) their kids are constantly throwing their phone throwing whatever they can get their hands on when they're mad there a lot of kids are hitting someone pretty much every kid is yelling or something like that and the kids who handle it better are often just kids who are kind of taking it out on themselves 
where maybe they go in the other room and they are just like, oh, like are hitting themselves or things where, that are just quieter or braiding themselves in their head. Like internalizing you know. it one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. And people like that. People go, well, this kid's doing great. <laughs> you know? And it's like, no, probably, <laughs> probably Actually, not. <laughs> man, I think that like um, some of my students were exactly like that. Like the well-behaved students who were also experiencing trauma having to do with mm-hmm. like the scarcity they were living with or the bad neighborhood or whatever. The same trauma that like, we would blame for their violent classmates. They were uh-huh. quote, handling, right? But they were still experiencing the same ups and downs. And yeah. a lot of those same kids who might have been academically gifted or like quiet in class, like end up kind of having much tougher problems to deal with than the kid who's always fighting. Because I kind of know where to go with the kid who's always fighting, you know? Like yeah. social emotional learning basics. But the kid who's a really good student, but who's like sad. <laughs> A lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's way harder. Yeah. Especially because you're usually not even looking at them because the other kid is taking up so much attention that you go, well, they 100%. seem to be good. Yeah. And I we do call that resilience. But is it? I mean, because usually there's going to be a breaking point for those kids. I've had quite a few kids who I saw from a family and they were usually it's like about the behaviors people really don't like any like big behaviors from kids Mm -hmm. so if it's yelling or hitting or whatever those are the kids that I see and then I'll talk to their parent and they'll go their siblings went through this too but they're actually great or these two siblings aren't handling it well but this one is fine and then within six months or something suddenly the other kid is having problems too and they go where did this come from why or you know now she's saying she hates herself or she whatever and it's like well yeah you kind of ignored her because she was handling it in a different way totally and usually with girls i think yeah or often i shouldn't say usually but like i i think it is often with girls yeah true like suddenly she's acting out like she hit teenager and now she's so she's like she used to be so bubbly and sweet and now she's so quiet yeah. or whatever it is sometimes it goes the yeah. opposite direction where it's like she used to be quiet and sweet and now she's interested in boys what's happening now she's wearing makeup <laughs> yeah not to say that and those I... behaviors are always like the result of trauma but like any kind of shift that happens after years of internalizing things Yeah, people think it's sudden and it's like, probably not really. It's just been building up. And I I do think a lot of girls do some of the quieter acting out because I had some other kids. um, One girl would, I don't know if you'd even call it rebellion or what it was, but I think she felt really uncomfortable. Um. When she was punished, it felt really unfair, but she also didn't feel like she could question it. So she would like go into the bathroom and she would empty all of the lotion, empty all of the soap, like whatever into the trash as a way to, I don't know, get back at the parent, express her rage. I'm not really sure totally what she got out of it because this was a kid I worked with at a distance, like Mm -hmm. in a foster care place. So I wasn't her therapist all I wanted to do was be her therapist or her foster parent because I was like, I feel like I get this kid and the other people really don't. They just go, God, she's such a troublemaker. Why is she like this? And it's like, I don't know, severe neglect, parent on drugs, parent with also with a mental illness. I mean, 
could be some of the trauma, maybe, or maybe she's just a brat. Um, as I said, this agency was horrible and they literally would call the kids brats. They would call them spoiled. And when you knew their history, like calling them those things seems absolutely insane when you could just say trauma response, you know what I mean? Like, but, um, yeah, I think a lot of those quieter behaviors often come from girls. So they're they're ignored but the boys are also made to feel like they're pieces of shit because they're exactly. usually angry and it's just so. the same what's crazy about like having done um the teach for india fellowship which probably also happens to teach for america fellows who are like usually from like upper middle class educated families because teach for america recruits from there to send mm. teachers into like tough neighborhoods so it's the like kind of culture shock that i had going to like my mom's home country to do, you know, like the being a foreigner. I think that also happens mm-hmm. to Teach for America when you're still in your own country. My sister's a Teach for America person and she, okay. alum, and now she's still a teacher. And I think that th- that same kind of culture shock happens. But one insight related to that, that I had immediately was like, I'm from, my dad was a special ed teacher in Chicago. My sister is a teacher and Teach for America alum. And, like, all the problems that in India are so, like, we would assume would be there, poverty, too many kids in the classroom, like, no vocabulary to deal with these social and emotional issues. Like, no one was equipped to use the language of trauma. Instead, they just say, like, this kid is spoiled. All that Mm. stuff, which we would kind of expect to find in India, is equally as bad here. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Like, you'd see it every day, probably. Yeah. And like, um, that's a bummer because India is way more fucked up or should, has a lot more excuses to be way more fucked up than we do because there's yeah, way more people, but, way less money. But ultimately, a lot of the problems that come out like are just people and the way people deal with stuff. And the, you know what I mean? Where we always want to go, oh, well, maybe it's because there wasn't money or there wasn't education or there wasn't. And it's like. I think it is just a lot of people are, most people are like terrible at handling just about everything, (laughs) you know? That's by like all the research that was foisted on me in teacher training and now in my Mm. new job, like the stuff I'm learning about learning sciences, all of it says that um, investing in infrastructure, stuff like better classrooms or tech in classrooms, or even Mm -hmm. to a point um, getting fewer kids in classrooms, all that stuff has less of a return on investment than something like teacher training. <laughs> exactly what oh, you're wow. saying. That, like just throwing money at the problem only goes so far. And of course, teachers are underpaid and classrooms are whatever, too small and under-equipped. But like the mm-hmm. real results come from like re-examining behaviors and practices, not from building a better school or like getting tablets in there. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, that is like not surprising to me, but I've never heard that before. But I'm sure a lot of people would be like, no, no way. Those are the solutions. It's like, you got to change yourself. You got to change the teachers, your responses. Um, Yeah, I've been around a lot of teachers. A lot of them are fucking mean too. (laughs) I'm like, do you think you're going to get anywhere with behaving this way? Like, I don't know. There's so much resentment. I think a lot of that is because, like, I do think we should just throw money, more money at teachers. That's not the yeah, totally. We should just pay them a lot more. True. And I yeah. think that they would be happier. 
And that would translate into, like, besides, like, all the direct things of, like, you know, it makes it a better incentive for people with master's degrees to go into teaching, all that shit. The main thing is, like, maybe people wouldn't be so resentful and upset all the time if yeah. they heard something commensurate with their value. Very true. There's also, like, a lot of responsibility on teachers in many ways. Like, they have to teach the students. They also have to control the behavior of the students they have to do the parent-teacher conferences they have to do the individualized education plans for the kids that maybe are struggling Mm -hmm. academically they have to create the plan to do the teaching every day and have the worksheets and there's there's so much that it's I don't see how it couldn't be like a hundred percent of your day Ideally, and just make you miserable. <laughs> ideally, there's someone like you who has a separate set of responsibilities that's comp- and teachers are relieved of that, right? But uh, often there's not someone like you. Do well, you, and even when there is... I, yeah, I so I work in a lot of the schools I did more before COVID. Like now I'm working a lot more with just like mental health, so not as much with the schools. Um, but... I never felt like I was doing anything that effective. I It's very hard. I still don't really get the tricks for changing like kids' behaviors or helping. I, I don't know if they're, they even exist. <laughs> I don't know. But I think a lot of it is definitely the families. It's like I can't change too much from talking to a kid for 30 to 45 minutes once a week, if their family handles stuff in a really different way, or they're dealing with a lot at home, because it's not an adult. It's not someone who's saying, I want to change this. I see this as a problem. It's not someone who has control over their life. So it feels like I'm not doing much for the teachers, except taking the kid out of the classroom for that 30 to 45 minutes where it's like, well, now you don't have to deal with them for at least this amount of time, you know, so bleak, but yeah. I know exactly. <laughs> yeah, it sounds terrible. But I'm at start I'm starting to notice when I'm reading through notes and stuff, I'm starting to notice that around 40 to 50 counseling sessions is when maybe I'm seeing things happening more for the kids. So and and that's even if they had a therapist before me and were transferred to me. So it just seems like maybe kids need a really long time to reinforce the material. But I also go, maybe it's just because they're getting older. Like, I don't know. (laughs) It's so hard to say, you know, because kids are changing all the time. (sighs) Yeah, it makes it hard, though. It is hard to work with kids on therapy stuff because I just, I don't see as much of the changes. Maybe they're there. Or you know, it's, know. <laughs> yeah, or not. Cause kids can't, they can't tell you really when improvements are happening. So just like when I ask the kids, when have you been angry? And they say, oh, when I was playing my video game, a lot of the time, the majority of the time they just say, oh, I don't know. Or yeah, everything was good. Like they just don't have that. So they can't say things were better or worse. So, so I just have to kind of go, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Oh man. I kind of derailed the conversation with kid talk, but it is, I really like to hear you talking about work because um, 
it's fucking hard probably <laughs> and I think like yeah there's so much there to talk about and no I wanted to go to the kid talk I had it written out to go to kid talk it was just going to be later but since it came up early I thought let's do this now let's get into <laughs> it and then we'll return to podcast edition of which is worse that's right yeah <laughs> that might feel less important after this but I don't know maybe a welcome respite yeah yeah you've got to take your breaks with just complaining about some podcast shit <laughs> all right yeah let's you know what here we go Oh, actually, this is so funny, but I want to return to the last one we did where I talked about uh, celebrities guesting on a podcast. Yes, yes. I feel like that is worse for me than a celebrity hosted podcast because there's no way they are like close friends with the host. So it's pretty much always going to be a little awkward and there's going to be that power differential and that like I'm trying to impress them. And the celebrity also being like, I want to seem cool to the audience. Mm -hmm. Like they're just getting to know me as like a person taking a deep dive <laughs> into who I am. Oh, God. It is like so, yeah. cringy and shitty, yeah. especially on like the types of shows that, that like, you know, the all comedy shows that we both listen to where it's like you get to know these comedians and their sensibilities very well. And they often have people who they've known for years, like their alt comedy friends. And yeah. then some huge star comes and it just feels awful. Yes. You notice the difference. You, you sure. hear every little change in, in what they're doing and it, yeah, it becomes very uncomfortable to listen to. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I get, yeah, you're right. And in fact, like, I guess the hosted ones are probably for someone, just not me and maybe not for you like Rob Lowe's podcast. Yeah. And you can like, probably someone loves listening to him every week, but like yeah. the episodes of like Hollywood handbook with someone awful are not for anyone because the Hollywood handbook mm -hmm. audience, us, we also hate it. And so, like, yes. and that person's fans certainly doesn't get it. Yeah. I couldn't, uh, you know, when like Obama was on yes. Marin, yeah. I was like, I can't. It feels like it's supposed to be like a big deal. I can't listen to that. I don't know if it's just like that cringe factor. There was also, who was it? Emma Thompson was on a podcast recently. That, um, I said no gifts. I could not listen either. I was like, that's not happening. There's no way. I don't want to hear what Emma Thompson is going to do to try to be funny. I don't want to no. hear the host saying, you know. <laughs> Totally. It's yeah, you're right. <laughs> Some people like those like cringy moments. I always just want to feel like I'm in safe hands, especially with um, yeah. something like a talk show. Like the whole point of it is to like let go. And this other person has kind of takes the reins. And yeah. So I want to feel like I'm safe. And that means that that person who's hosting has to be safe kind of. That's true. That's a really interesting way to view that. And it's the same thing with like improv and open mics, like stand up, where it's like you want that you want to be confident that that person won't fail. For me, at least. Mm -hmm. And like uh, when I'm when the person is confident, then I feel like okay, like this is okay, even if they're not that. Funny, yeah. I feel like they're bulletproof. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, and I feel like most of the time things feel okay. Like when I've seen open mics or just like lesser known comedians, they, they usually make me feel like they feel fairly comfortable, even if it's a little off, but I remember seeing one person and it was so strange because there were like probably five or six performers before this person and all of them went pretty well. But as soon as this person came out, you could like feel the energy shift in the room and everyone was just like, we're not on board with her. This, I know she's not funny. And she got like no laughs and it was horrible to be a part of. (laughs) And I don't know why. I don't know if it was that she maybe does have uh, an awkwardness or insecurity that was coming across that we all sensed as like these sick human animals where we're like, you're weak. Get her down in your brain. Like yeah. subconscious, like body language cue. Just totally yeah, we do have that. Like, you know, when you see a kid or, or even an adult and you go, that's a bullyable person. Mm-hmm. Like that you can sense the weakness mm-hmm. and you know that they were bullied or that, you know, kids would single them out. I don't know what it is, but <laughs> you see it. Yeah. And I think that like getting back once again to something very serious and not funny, but like about your work, (laughs) about your work is like, you know, people who were once who have survived some trauma are, of course, more likely to be like preyed upon again. Right. Or like, you know, there's something like that. And so there is something that maybe we all pick up on and some bad people take advantage of the fact that we can pick up on that stuff. That is so true. And it's so fucking weird too. how it's not even, oh, any trauma can happen to them again. It's often the same one they already went through, whether it was like a domestic violence situation or sexual assault or, you know, it's often the same thing again and again. And what is that? Like, do the, because I know that often the, the victims don't know that they're entering into maybe a new domestic violence relationship. Mm -hmm. They think the person's good initially. Does the abuser know, are they aware this is a person I can get away with abusing? Or is it also just like subconscious? They just don't really know that that's why they're attracted to them, but it is. And that's so interesting to like think about that in terms of performance art. I had never thought of that before. I do always say, like, I like to be in safe hands. It's kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. with, like, talk show hosts. Like, Jimmy Fallon doesn't make me feel safe. Also, he sucks. But, like, um, <laughs> you know, like, David Letterman also kind of sucks. But I do feel safe watching yeah. David Letterman. Um, okay. You know what I mean? Like, I kind yeah. of feel like, oh, this person has a handle on his job, and I feel safe. David Letterman's too mean for me. Oh, to- he is mean. And he kind of sucks. He, I, yeah. I don't think he's I, also, I don't think he's funny. I I realized recently because I did watch all of comedians and cars getting coffee. No. I did, what? and I I was afraid of watching it because I thought it would be really awkward. And for the most part, it's not. 
and Jerry Seinfeld is actually like a very original person. Like you never know what his point of view is going to be on something. Cause you think, you know him, you go, he's this rich guy, kind of out of touch, but he's yeah. funny, but he's, you know, but then he'll say something or do something that you're like, well, what the fuck? I didn't see that coming. So he's just like kind of an unpredictable in a way that's interesting, yeah. but he also, makes little gay jokes and he makes little racist jokes which is something i've noticed a lot of like older white men doing who are maybe more intelligent where like they're aware mm. this isn't something they're supposed to be doing <laughs> but they go but i get it or i'm like a step above so i kind of can and do it I'm and it's like and this is a joke and we all know yeah it. which is like the same thing yeah. that ends up being like um improv guys being ironic and and being shitty and it's funny that i said that like um i feel safe watching some people and not others because of course like i'm like a white-ish whatever you know like i'm a white enough <laughs> man in america that like um all the shitty jokes like don't make me feel less safe because like my identity is so protected so like yeah. what i meant by i feel safe watching someone like letterman is because like as a performer they're so like self-possessed uh, I feel yeah. like they won't crash and burn in front of me. But safe, yeah. of course, has another broader meaning. Like as an audience member, you want to feel like you're not going to suddenly get attacked in the middle of watching a show. True. Which yeah. is like when Jerry Seinfeld like drops a racist joke. It's like that's a different type of violating the safety net. That's so true. And that I think comes out like I don't want to watch Dave Chappelle's new stand-up. Same. Like I've watched a little bit of it um, because I felt like, oh, I have to try it. Because people act like you're, um, you know, just this innocent baby bird terrified of being offended if you don't like his new stuff. But no, it's like, no, it's sincerely bad. And it's like sincerely offensive. It's not like... I'm I'm not like breaking down because of it, but I'm like, I don't really want to hear from someone who's who genuinely is saying kind of hateful transgender jokes. He can say they're jokes. They're not jokes. You're expressing your real beliefs on stage to a, on an audience that laughs, but you're not joking. And an audience you know? that like respects you because you're cashing in on years of credibility. Even worse, like yes. your opinion carries weight now. Yes. And I love Dave Chappelle. Like those for early specials, those DVD specials. Like I've watched those yeah. so many times. I thought he was so like gifted and brilliant. And I think he probably is. But like, yeah, he's a shitty person in a lot of ways. And, you know, he at least he was gifted and brilliant. There, there are things that I think, I really think that that spark can leave people. And, and we think it's there forever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like, I saw the last couple Tarantino movies. Those weren't very good to me. I didn't think he was going to lose it. But but to me, it's like, no, yeah, something happened and you just don't have it anymore. And, maybe that and whole, that's like, kind of, you know. Maybe that whole way of thinking about artists is dumb anyway. Of like, just because yeah. someone made a good thing doesn't mean they're A, a good person. We know that. But B, it might not mean that they're yeah. even that good of an artist. Maybe they made one really <laughs> yeah. good thing. But sometimes it's like three or four or five like things that yeah. touch you and feel like they connect with you and they feel brilliant and you go, oh my God, this person gets it and they get me and I this was made for me. 
and then they lose it. And I, so it's like, I get like you feeling like you, you can rely on this person, but you really can't. You just never consistently can. (laughs) Oh yeah. But also, so David Letterman was on Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee and so was Jay Leno. So my favorite late night person was always Conan because mm-hmm. he's hilarious and, and he makes me feel the most safe. Yes, he makes me feel the most safe too. And that's kind of why <laughs> I like David Letterman because Conan loved David Letterman. And, you know, like he referenced yeah. Letterman's earliest show as the influence for Conan's earliest show. Maybe that's why. And that's, yeah, there's so many people like I remember Sarah Silverman also talking about loving Letterman. Um, She also loves Howard Stern. There's people who I like want to like, but I can't really do it. Although Howard Stern was also on Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee and it did make me like him a little bit (laughs) just on that episode because he was very like sincere and vulnerable. And like, I was like, oh, I've never really seen that before. That was interesting. But but I always preferred Jay Leno to David Letterman and people would tell me, no, 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 that's wrong. Letterman's the funny one. Leno's just lame. But watching the show, it fully was cemented that I, for me at least, am fully right. Leno is funny and he's good nature. He's a nice person. Letterman has that underlying, I want to make a dig at someone. He, I think he like talked, like made some fat joke or something while he was out with Jerry and he's just not funny to me either. So when you get those two sides, I really don't like mean spirited people. (laughs) I really don't like it. Has that edge. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I, if, if it's just a joke, I can like it. But when I can tell this is part of who you are, I don't like it. I don't like it. And I like that Jay Leno has been married to his wife for so long. Okay. Whereas Letterman is like sleeping with the intern yeah. still or whatever. I, it's just, no, that's there's no contest. It's Jay Leno. <laughs> Man, that's interesting. Cause like, of course I always like, I was just conditioned as like a comedy fan to think it was like Jay Leno as like the boring sellout and Letterman as like yeah. the kind of, but like, they're just two like, like kind of mediocre white comedians who landed these crazy network yeah. TV shows they're like equally they should be equally mediocre and boring and like pandering first of all so I don't know why I would like yeah. one more than the other but the other thing is like <laughs> a lot of the stuff that people say about Letterman that they like or like the tone like the chip on his shoulder or the edge and the fact that he's always carried a grudge about the tonight show like that's insane when you think of the fact that he's like a hundred millionaire because of like a, <laughs> you know an equally successful insanely good yeah. job yeah. Yeah. So carrying that resentment, like Michael Jordan, like being able to carry pettiness and resentment with you through such astonishing success. That's like a special kind of brain problem. Yeah. But you know what? Okay. So I never understood when people carried that kind of stuff with them until a couple of things happened to me that I'll just go into one of the things that really made me feel like um an anger maybe and a shame and uh um I don't I don't even know how to describe all of it but they were feelings that I didn't understand how people could hold on to those for so long and it was getting fired from a job that I really liked 
And it was my fault. And I think maybe that's part of why I held on to it mm. so much, held on to the anger, because I could blame myself. But it also wasn't solely my fault. It was also they didn't really, you know, uh, care why I was calling in sick a lot and stuff. You know, I had like medical stuff going on and, and different things that were um, very stressful. And I felt like, first of all, I can be very um, shy in a way. So I don't always like share thoughts mm. and feelings. So that kept me more isolated. But also, I didn't think I necessarily had to, it feels like, but if I'm going through a medical thing, and I kind of tell you in general, that should be good enough. And you should understand why I'm gone. I shouldn't have to really make you like connect to it to care. You know what I mean? And I feel like maybe that's what it would have taken if I had said anytime I went to the doctor, this is exactly what happened. It's so stressful. Or this is, you know, like maybe they wouldn't have fired me. I don't know. But having that happen was, it really created all these feelings that were uh, very difficult to deal with. And the only way that I got rid of them was by having an interview with the boss who fired me like two years later. And somehow it's not like that went well. It was just like facing the main person who in my mind was like responsible for all this pain and just like seeing her again and going, she's just still a person and I can talk to her and it's fine. Like it really kind of released all of that emotion. So I don't know. I more get now when people yeah. are holding on to pettiness or something. You, like you have to do something to get out of it. How did you arrange the interview? When, so uh, this is like a county job. So when you like take the test and you qualify for a certain position, you get called from any department in the mm -hmm. whole county that has that position available. So I interviewed with so many people. <laughs> it was like, I had like eight interviews, I think, for this, this one time within like a couple week period. So that was just one of them. And I definitely wanted to say, no, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> this interview is a no for me. But but I did think maybe this would be helpful because it feels terrifying. But, you know, facing it might be better than just like hiding. That is cool that you did that because most people don't, first of all, get the chance to do that. But also like most people yeah. might avoid, I, I think I'd probably avoid that or not have the guts to like face up to it. Yeah. So yeah. You didn't confront it explicitly with them, huh? No, no, it was not like, why did you do this? To no, me? I, mean, I mean, there wasn't it, any. Uh, did you acknowledge <laughs> the fact that you had once worked for them? Uh, no, but, but before, I mean, she knew maybe we said something of just like, hi, in a like, I recognize you. Again, right. Yeah. Yeah. But when I was waiting to be interviewed, I could hear them talking in the room. It was like such thin walls, I guess. I wasn't even that close to the room they were in, but I could fully hear what they were saying. Yeah, so yeah. one thing she said was like, oh, the next person coming in actually used to work for me before. And the other lady said, oh, is that going to be awkward or something? And she said, like, yeah, maybe a little, but no, it'll be fine. So I got to at least hear her acknowledging we know each other, her knowing, like, it wasn't a complete surprise to her when I walked in the room. You know, that kind of That's ideal. That sounds like she, yeah. <laughs> you know, she said the right thing. 
Yes, she could have been like, yeah, it's going to suck. She was a terrible employee. And she really could have, you know, but because we didn't work like directly together. She was like the highest up boss ah, who I ultimately see. decided I should get fired. But we only actually knew each other or saw each other in person like four okay. times, maybe. So it wasn't so bad. I don't know. <laughs> That's wild. But yeah, so... I don't know. I, I think that I haven't seen like the Michael Jordan stuff. Maybe some people, I think a lot of people hold on to a negative trait or a negative emotion as like power and they go, this fuels me. Oh. So I don't want to get rid of it. And it's like, okay. But <laughs> if you want to get through it, you probably have to like take some step to get through it. But then maybe you can't be like the best basketball player anymore. Because like all right. that was driving you was just pure. Maybe that venom. does fuel you. Yeah. For like it's, broken it's people. Like, yeah. Like when people say their mental illness is like responsible for their like art or whatever. And it's like, Which is dumb like then bad. I guess you have to decide <laughs> what. <laughs> Which is dumb and bad. I think that's such a shitty thing. <laughs> like, there's it's, it's like if you have the talent I think it'll probably come out in a different way and it'll be good anyway but I do kind of get if you're feeling intense emotion all the time and you get to express that through art like it is maybe a little easier and maybe even a little deeper when you do that like because I know when I was going through just like a terrible time in my life I was like I need to write poetry and like I've never been good at that and it's not even something I really do but I felt like I was making like legitimately like beautiful, deep poetry because I was so fucking tortured. And I have, I'll have to see it again to see if that's true at all. Uh, but uh, it might just suck. But I I don't know. I, I always find myself wanting to make art when I'm going through something really hard. So like if someone just died or, you know, heartbreak in some way, like that's the time when I really have things to say and I, you know, understand my feelings more than other times. So I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say. I worry about that like trope because of course then it's like, you know, it's another reason to like not seek treatment for like something like depression. <laughs> right. like, what if like being happy like stops me from being like whatever, like writing funny yeah. stuff or like playing the piano, <laughs> whatever people do. But like, I, I think yeah. that like usually... I want to, I'm able to make stuff more when I'm like happy and stable, but I, yeah. of course I know what you mean that like, there's more to draw on maybe when you're unhappy, but it's such a trope about yeah. artists, about creativity. Yeah. And, and the, I think it, it is true for certain people. I think there are people who are highly motivated by their pain. Mm -hmm. There's like, you know, Elliot Smith type people who like are constantly, Bain, I guess, or like blues music, yeah, players, whatever it is, yeah, and and maybe it's just trying to escape those feelings because I I used to work with someone who she'd been clean from drugs for a while I think but like years but she was doing something like every minute of every day like she would sleep very little and she would wake up and make food for homeless people deliver it to homeless people at like four in the morning and then go to work at like 5 30 and then 
work all day and then she had a second job and she also like baked things for people. So if someone had an event, she would like cater in that way. And I feel like she she had to do that or else she knew she would want to use drugs. It was like, if I'm not busy constantly. So I think that's what some people's mental illness is for them where they're like, I need to be creating or this is just in me and I want to fucking die. But that's not everybody. Yeah. Uh, most people, I would say, are just like not motivated. <laughs> you're just oh. not feeling well <laughs> when yeah. you're yeah, that's sad cool. or whatever. But that is amazing. Like of all the coping mechanisms you could have for like an addiction like being suddenly incredibly productive and like helping people and working two jobs it could be worse i guess you know like your yeah. mechanism could be a lot more self-destructive than that that sounds like a dream definitely no she was amazing i was so impressed with all she did for people it was crazy but i was like that seems like torture if you feel like you, you have, have to. to do this yes if you're not enjoying it Cause I can't, I can't be that busy. I don't enjoy it. <laughs> it's probably, I mean, unhealthy on some level to like, yeah. If you feel like, <laughs> ob, like a constant <laughs> obligation driving you. Yeah. That's not good, but still that's impressive. I always think yeah. depression as like um, paralyzing or, you know, not just depression, mm -hmm. but I guess like anything mental illness, but mm -hmm. maybe for some people it's kind of the opposite where like you keep moving to stay a step ahead of it yeah yeah I think I think that's right it goes different ways for different people um I yeah it is always it just in general too how some people are so motivated to do things and other people aren't like it's just it's always funny when you hear advice from someone that's just like make it a job <laughs> you want to be a writer do yeah. it eight hours a day wake up at eight and do it and do it till five I'm like if I had that sort of drive or ability, like, I, yeah, I probably would just be doing that. Like, you can't tell me that that just you're forcing yourself to do that every day and you hate it. Like, yeah. that has to just be your personality, too. You know, I think some I of that is like hardwired because like, you know, yeah, I, I, I often wish that like creative self-discipline is something that like I've often struggled with to like. You know, like the more yeah. time I have, the less I do sometimes. <laughs> and so like mm -hmm. when my time is really structured, then I'm like able to get shit done when it's like externally structured by a job and I like try yeah. or write more. Uh, but I can't like sit down and do it as my job just because I want to sit for like eight hours every day and draw pictures or write. But like that's yeah. all the advice you hear. It's like a type of totally. rise and grind just for like creativity. Which is like, well, yeah. writers write. If you're not writing every day, then you're not a writer. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's like, I don't think that's how creativity works, though, generally. And I don't know that we need that level of output from you. We, we don't that's need right. another fucking Stephen King making For 300 sure. books or whatever. Like, it can be, you know, you write or draw or whatever, like, once a week and get a really good flow going when you actually have the motivation. Um yeah, I don't think it needs to be eight hours a day. That seems psychotic. I don't know who can actually keep that up. And then if you do, are you saying anything worthwhile? Because I think usually the people who say that, you get a look at their stuff and you go, well, I mean, sure. <laughs> yeah. If you just want to make anything, I guess. Uh, the artists I've noticed, like, 
people like making, you know, paintings and that kind of art, the ones who are doing it the most tend to be the ones who are essentially recreating the same thing over and over again, or they're not that particular about what they're making. They have like a common theme that is easy to draw from. So if you don't mind doing like cartoon characters or whatever, like just recreating, you know, um, which is valid, but not everybody can do that. But if you like doing that, then yeah, sure, you can make something every day because you constantly have inspiration. You constantly have something that you want to make. Um, like I said, some of the people recreating stuff, I mean, it's crazy. I'm sure you've seen some of these artists where everything they put out is just slightly different yes, from the other things that. they've made. But it's like, if that makes you happy, great. But if you're only doing it because you want to produce that feels a little sad. Wait for yourself to have a new idea. That's true. I mean, at the same time, like I've always said, especially about um, drawing, like a lot of my comic artist heroes are like these old school guys who are, were super workmanlike and some women too, but like, of course, early comics was mostly men. But um, all of them, men and women, had had this like uh, almost like blue collar approach to, because they many of them didn't even consider comics to be like art. Which of course they were mistaken mm-hmm. about, and they many of them were genius artists. But um, <laughs> their approach, and I think that many like successful commercial artists approach the people I respect more than say like fine artists often um, are people who approach it with that like, you know, this is a craft. I'm going to do it do it every day because it's a job. <laughs> like you have mm. to work all the you have to treat it like everyday practice. You won't get better. Anyone could do it. It's not some innate genius. You just have to work hard mm. on it. And I like that because I do think that it like demystifies creativity a little yeah. bit where we have this bullshit that's thing true. of like inspiration strikes like magic and that's how creativity works. When in fact, I do think it is more like if you set aside the time to do it a lot, maybe you'll get inspired. <laughs> maybe it's, you know, like inspiration yeah. comes gradually. But there's like a balance between that and the weird like advice you get about writing, say where like and especially now on the internet where like there's all these people telling you how to write like there's a whole mm-hmm. cottage industry of people being like you got to write every day here's some habits morning pages all that shit um, especially if you've googled it once then suddenly every ad or, you yes. see <laughs> yes 100 percent. and i'm sure that like all these master classes I, I stephen king's on writing is like a book that i really like have you read that i haven't it, it is I think worth a read. I read it a long time ago, but it's like um, he talks about, you know, like setting aside the time, writing every day. And uh, and like he's famously very productive and maybe not all of it is good or any of it. I don't know. I like Stephen King, but like some people don't. It is schlocky and formulaic. Um, Yeah. But like that same advice that he gave in that book is, of course, recycled 10 million times on like writing blogs and master classes and like screenwriting tips or whatever, you know, uh, comedians mm-hmm. say the same thing. Jerry Seinfeld is a famous pr- proponent, right? He has this thing where yeah. like you make an X on your calendar every day that you do, that you write a joke or whatever. He's like a famous mm. routine guy. And that has become just like the gospel. Like, well, you treat it like work. And now it just yeah. like anything else, like rise and grind Instagram culture. Yeah. And that, yeah, that kind of sucks. But I like 
also how you're saying it makes it seem like accessible, like anybody could do this if you put in the work. But then I also wonder how how actually toxic that mindset can be because you're probably not going to do it. So then it just becomes this thing where you're failing every day because you're not doing this thing. It's so easy. Anybody could do it and you're not doing it. So it's your fault. You're a failure when really forcing yourself to do something creative every day is hard. And, and there are more steps to it too. I think there are things you could do every day. I don't know if you can like produce the work every day, but I think every day you could sit down and think of ideas. I think you could brainstorm like, and I've read some cool ideas for brainstorming. I read this one book about TV writing where she suggested you take the, um, all the seven deadly sins and write out like, deep like memories or experiences you had related to each one yeah and she said if you training exercises like when you have limits boundaries it can like prompt you I think that's yeah yeah definitely and I think you could absolutely do some form of at least planning your creativity every day one but actually sitting down and doing it every day for eight hours or whatever especially I don't know I don't know I think it's interesting talking about writing because you're like, I've told you a million times, like you're a very gifted writer and, and sometimes you write a lot and sometimes you don't. Um, but um, with other stuff, like with drawing or painting or music, like there's a type of it that you're expected to do every day or you're expected to work on anyway, which is just like practice. So like mm-hmm. figure drawing from life, uh, you're not like necessarily trying to think of anything brand new or make a story you're practicing and of course musicians practice yeah. but with writing of course there is nothing quite like that even the exercises <laughs> yeah. are like a wholly creative act you know there's nothing like mechanically that you can do just to practice the muscle memory of it like you can with drawing and music that's so true that's really funny that's a great observation yeah so i don't know it's like a, it's kind of a different thing entirely yeah That's true. Yeah. So maybe when you're thinking of creating like art every day, maybe that is very true. You can draw every day. And I think a lot of it is being not being too picky about what you're doing. Not everything has to be. I had this great idea. I have this new thing I'm passionate about. Sometimes it's just, I'm going to draw this thing that I saw like or whatever it is like I'm going to do this writing exercise app or I'm going to draw something I drew a week ago and see Mm -hmm. if I can do it better now or or whatever like that's definitely doable I think for drawing but but it's still you have to be there mentally how do you get yourself to actually do it when you're living a life (laughs) yeah otherwise but there is no comparable thing writing like, you know, there's, yeah. like, there's all these things, like, you can do a self-portrait every day or every week. A lot of art schools, I think, use that kind of, like, rubric as a, just, you know, these, like, long-term check your work against your previous work. Um, yeah. But how do you do that with writing? You're not going to, like, write the same, you know, I guess, like, with certain types of writing, like, whatever debate club or, like, legal writing, you might try to argue the same uh, point like one year apart and see how well you did the next time after learning argumentation, but not with creative writing. No. And then, but even, even if you do, even if you somehow find a way to, to recreate some of those exercises, how do you know you've improved when it's writing? 
it's like it's all kind of subjective, but especially when it's your own writing. I know some people always think their stuff sucks. I think some people always think their stuff is good. <laughs> you know, I feel like I'm more of a person who like, I'm always like, yeah, I like it. I mean, I wrote it. Of course I like it. I think I did a great job. So <laughs> it's like in order to get feedback, I have to ask someone. But then you're bringing in it's someone else's mind and their creativity and what they like. So how can you know it's totally accurate for what you're looking for, you know? Very true. So, yeah, it's tough. It's hard to be a writer who does it right. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's, the, that's what we're getting at. Um, okay, you know what? I'm going to ask you some more of these questions. And then I actually do have an art sort of game. So oh. we'll see if that that works wait can you hear me okay Okay. i realized like just recently that i'm using the wrong microphone i think it's probably soft you might have to turn my side up in post okay yeah i feel like i can hear you well but i was starting to wonder because i'm always like too loud like i have to like majorly edit my audio so you might be good um no i think you seem good it's going up to three greens or whatever which is all i seem to need i think that's good (laughs) i hope so mine goes up to the yellow which i think is starting to be the danger yeah that's true it does look (laughs) it does it's terrifying all right i can't believe we're still on this This (laughs) i'm pathetic i'm not sure which is worse podcast edition all right a sincere theme song or i don't want to say just a bad theme song but something's off about it it's not it's not sincere but you hear it and you kind of go oh is that on key or (laughs) um i think the second one because sincere theme songs maybe i can just get like i can give them the benefit of the doubt even if it's bad yeah. But give me an example of the second one. I don't want to get stuck on this or derail you, but. I I feel bad saying this, but reality show show and Hollywood handbook. I have like a jokey theme song that. It's it's jokey, but it's also sincere. Uh, and I just hate the sound of it. <laughs> I hate both of them. They're, I, a sincere female vocal I think is a big problem for me. There's quite a few podcasts that I have that and it really, I go, oof, no, 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 no. I thought you meant sincere as in like um, serial or other NPR style, like polished uh, instrumental motifs that then they can like repeat for a closing theme or sometimes throughout the episode. No, yes. Okay. So this is, sorry, the second one is the, uh, what I'm calling annoying theme song. So that's reality show show on Hollywood Hampton sincere is normal music or um i listened to this one podcast called falling in love and the intro is like this very breathy like kind of beautiful like do you want to fall in love and it's like oh what but it's like kind of a funny podcast so it's just like odd but so that anything that's like uh, there's there's heart to it. Mm. They really think the music is good. I think I still prefer that. I listen to um, Jonathan yeah. Goldstein's podcast, Heavyweight. He's like a former This American Life producer, and he has a podcast now. Um, and he uses like you know a song that he obviously thinks is good, which I also like. 
But what if you don't like that song, but you like the podcast? Then you're fucked. But I think you can just like get yeah. used to it or skip it, and it's just a song. But when it's like a jokey thing, yeah. like a choice, like a big choice, like Hollywood Handbook, um, then it's a little bit harder to stomach if you don't like it. Although I do like it. I've always been trying really? to start. I was like, I, I was on board. <laughs> That's dumb, though. I, I, <laughs> I like that stupid, like, you know, I, I, I have always said that, like, oh, I immediately got that show or, like, some other shows that we like, of, like, the mm-hmm. tone of it, what they were going for. And some, some people just, like, it takes a while, but then they get it. And I think yeah. like, I was like, oh, yeah, like, Rupert Grant, that's funny. He's not famous. <laughs> I was, like, ready to go. <laughs> I don't necessarily have that much of a problem with the lyrics. It's really just the singing. I It just is really grating oh, to me. I, like, aesthetically, just the style of it. Oh, yes. yes totally. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what they're, I, it's just their friend, I think, that's why. That's see, and that's part of the problem. I feel like almost any time I dislike an intro, it's like the person's friend. Even like, uh, I don't know if you ever listened to Julie Klausner's podcast, How Was Your Week? But she has uh, the theme by Ted Leo, who I guess she is friends with. But it's horrible. It's a horrible theme. It was like this clearly like his first attempt. He didn't like plan this out. He just went, cool, a dumb podcast theme. Like, let's go. And I don't know. I just wish he would have would have put a little more effort into it so it wasn't annoying but i don't know <laughs> maybe for people who like his band they don't think it's annoying <laughs> i don't know well one exception is like our friend bear who makes cool good uh no oh, yeah it's like dunktown they, they yeah. get praise for that if you listen to dunktown sometimes like random famous people will be yeah. like oh your theme song is so good i always feel like i should go tell yeah. Bear like this is you're getting just like praised by random famous people yeah i would definitely say let them know anytime it happens you know like because i mean i well maybe they do listen to the podcast every week i don't know but i remember that happening on trends with benefits too Mm -hmm. where bear also made the theme and yeah they're just really really good at making catchy shit and also emotional shit like whatever whatever they want people to feel is probably what they're gonna feel when they listen to the music totally still but they also are like yeah. um i've heard bear sometimes say like uh that's the silly stuff kind of as opposed yes to, and so i always want to tell them like that is very good like it sets out to do something yeah. and accomplishes it and everyone loves it Yes. Yeah. Sometimes they get like dismissive of that or think people will think that's all I can do. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I think it's kind of cool. I do think we're like taught to narrow our focus. You need to have a focus or else people won't get it. Like I remember watching uh, Project Greenlight once and they were making this movie and they ended up telling them, well, is it a comedy or drama? You really need to pick one because you have all these dramatic elements, but then I'm laughing and and you really need to pick it. So I think they ended up editing it and changing it so that it was just a comedy. And it felt so stupid to me. <laughs> it's like, you think people won't know, like, am I supposed to laugh or cry? Like, I don't know. But I think we're constantly told we should be limiting ourselves or else people won't enjoy us. But the reality is that most people just want to get to know other people and all sides of them. You know, that's why people are listening to Rob Lowe's podcast instead true. of just watching him in the outside or, or whatever. That's true. Because that's really explains <laughs> podcasts as a phenomenon for all these celebrities. 
Yeah, I think so. I think people, we, we really want to deeply know other people. I think we just have that desire. And I think that's like the whole appeal of, of even like dramas on TV. They're not real, but you feel like you're getting a glimpse into someone's life. But podcasts are even better because it, it, it is fucking real, you know? Okay, which is worse, the long preamble without a guest or the long ending without the guest? Hmm. I guess the long preamble, because that's, of course, what I always used to skip, like, in the early days of Mark Marin and stuff. Um, when, when it's an interview show, then the long preamble, but if you're listening to the show because you love the dynamic of the host, then of course, um, Mm -hmm. they're both fine. You just want to listen to them. They're your friends. Yeah. You're like stranger friends as them alone. Long, like outro without the guest is less common. And I do sometimes like that because, um, if the host like debriefs, kind of the experience of having spoken to the guest, then I feel like I'm mm-hmm. with them, even, you know, like getting to That's sit true. with them and they're like after interview chat. Yeah. That can be kind of cool. Yeah. I think it definitely depends on what they're doing with the time because I mean, I've mentioned this before, but the beginning of never not funny, it's like 30 minutes of the host and his boring co-host kind of they're more just guys listening in like his his groupies or something that are friends talking about whatever comes up which tends to be something really boring so I don't like that I'm like get to the guest I don't really want to hear this but then there's like Julie Klausner's podcast or um, Sean Conroy has a podcast where they both start with maybe telling a story or talking about what happened over the course of their week or something that is more entertaining. It's intended to be entertaining. And since I like their personalities, I really like that part. The outro, I think I only know Mental Illness Happy Hour does that. I am not sure if I can think of another show that does, but on Mental Illness Happy Hour, he'll read um, survey answers and stuff at the end. So there's still, there's a purpose. There's a segment after the interview segment. That's interesting. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's um, kind of unique and it's usually pretty cool, but it also is nice to be able to just say, I can stop the podcast now if I'm done, you know, because I heard the guest part. We're good. But he has an intro too without the guest. So that's what's really crazy. Is that Duncan Trussell? No, that one is Paul Gilmartin. Oh, I think I maybe tried the Duncan Trussell thing. He's just he's just too weird for me in a way that doesn't entertain me. Right kind of weird. Yeah, yeah. I think I tried that too, and and I think I probably found the same because I didn't listen to it very much. <laughs> yeah, I I think I probably didn't even listen to his podcast. I probably just heard him on another one and was like, uh-huh. he seems very me. into mushrooms, and totally. that's not a personality yeah. to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of people think it is. yeah yeah they do (laughs) okay which is worse the host repeating a quote a lot 
So they have their own little catchphrase or the fans repeating quotes from the show. Right. Obviously the fans repeating, but, but I mean, like, <laughs> I'm sure there are some annoying people who have catchphrases, but usually if you're listening to something, you're anyway like, oh, I love this person is funny. You're probably say their thing. I like it. It feels good. See, See, in Comedy Bang Bang had, like, the what's up hot, hot dog or whatever. That's what I thought of, too. And it's not it's awkward like, with anything, basically, is this. Yeah. <laughs> but when it's, like, ironic or detached or something, I like that. But when it's sincere, um, I I don't know about that. I There's a Comedy Film Nerds is a podcast I've listened to a little bit with Graham Elwood and oh, Chris Fairbanks, really maybe. Stuff. I mean, I do too. But what? Sometimes your taste is so bad. I don't listen to this anymore. <laughs> I think I was listening to this like in the early days of podcasts where there really weren't that many. Graham Elwood is the so, one who's like on Doug Loves Movies a lot and stuff. Is he? Yes. Okay. Is he... So he's All good right. friends with <laughs> Doug. And... I don't know if that's enough to carry a show on his own. But look, I'm sure he's a wonderful yeah. person. He's, um, it really, it was, it was another one of those shows that I listened to it and I was annoyed a lot of the time. I just didn't think it was very good. And just that it was called comedy film nerds was already funny because they, instead of saying like movie nerds, film nerds implies some like intellectualism or something. But in reality, it was just like, we love Star Wars, you know, (laughs) where it's like, I don't know that that's like a film, you know? (laughs) So it was just odd hearing them be very like um, highbrow or something about some shitty movie. And also they were just like wrong a lot of the time. So it was just kind of frustrating to listen to them. But, you know, I did anyway. But Graham Elwood has a thing. I can't remember for sure if he said this on the podcast, but he has this thing in his standup where he says palm strike, I think is what it is, where he'll tell this whole story about karate kid or something. And then palm strike is like the, uh, the punchline. So then he sells merch that says like palm strike. And he, when he takes pictures with fans, he does it. And so having seen that, I'm like, oh, the host sincerely repeating a catchphrase, hoping it catches on. That really bums me out. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit more of a bummer for me. <laughs> that sucks, man. And I don't think that's like, um, I think that that's like probably what maybe he feels like he has to do to like do this as a job. And that's even yes. more bad. <laughs> that's even worse. Yeah. That's someone who I think is trying to like market themselves, but they don't fully get it. Or maybe they haven't like looked into how you should be marketing yourself in a very long time, you know, because there's definitely a desperation to it. And, and you can tell it's calculated. This isn't just, oh, I love talking about Palm Strike or whatever, like, no. It does, like, I mean, those things are annoying enough when they feel organic. Like, all the put that on a t-shirt stuff or, like, that's a t-shirt. That shit I could do without anyway. But when it's someone who's, like, (laughs) you know, um, planned ahead (laughs) and, like, when it doesn't even have the semblance of being organic and it's, like, cringy and shitty. Well, and you wonder if it even began with fans really responding to the joke. Because I know that happens sometimes. 
uh jackie cation has a joke about the dork forest yeah. and it was really a, a popular joke so now she'll sell shirts to say the dork forest i think she has a podcast called that. the dork forest which is still maybe a little much but i get it because that joke was so popular and then it it could you go okay you just talk about nerdy things and it kind of encompasses a lot but with Graham Elwood, I have a hard time believing that the fans went, oh, boy, we got to hear more about Bomb Strike. Like, I just don't know that that ever occurred. He was resisting trying to, you know, commercializing this joke and the <laughs> pressure from the fans was just overwhelming. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, I don't yeah, think so. that sucks, man. Maybe you're right. I take it back. With the fans, you can avoid it. You know, like you just don't have yeah. to go on like whatever horrible message board. <laughs> you don't have to like go on the Twitter of the host and see what all of their fans are saying. It's just, it's a little less pathetic with the fans because, you know, anybody can be a crazy fan of something and it still is, it still is rough to see someone say, hey, Nong man, over and over again, especially to the person who originally said it somehow thinking they might want to hear this from you and they don't and they don't want to be reminded of it and it's weird so there's definitely something there too but <laughs> both of them are we've talked about horrible. the fans thing many times over the years of being ourselves mm -hmm. having met because we like comedy <laughs> and like so many people who are like just fans of anything are all trash i always say that like almost all anyone who like <laughs> identifies themselves by being a fan of something else, just like go fuck yourself. I think it's like, yeah. you should love whatever you want to love and like express it however you want. But like, why is, why, why do you need that to be like a tag you apply, like a, a word that you use to describe yourself? It's like already. I in think the it red is zone. often, it's often people who don't have a strong personality themselves and they want to they they want to be connected to something that people already have decided they like like Miranda recently opened my eyes to the friends culture the deep like people are still having like baby showers that are friends themes or weddings that are friends themed and crazy shit like that and i think these are people who like i love friends too i really think it's a great show but i don't connect with it on like it's it's not a part of who i am or right. anything so i do wonder why people need it to be part of who they are is it a way to make yourself feel important interesting lovable because you are friends. You are the embodiment of friends. <laughs> maybe, I mean, the other thing that always comes up whenever I talk about this uh, is like, maybe we're just shitty and contrarian. And like, <laughs> maybe they're like perfectly normal, just feeling human feelings and like feeling like part of a community because they like something. And like, it's important to me to be above that for some like problem, you know, some brain problem I have is manifesting itself <laughs> as being like, you know, part of my self-identity is like, I don't, I'm not a fan. Of stuff. I don't do yeah. that. But you know what? I would agree with that. But I also feel like we've all done that in a way that isn't totally stupid. I feel like we are like 
we're the fans and we do stuff like for the show and we talk about the show and we've like made little things for the show and to try to get the attention of the host. So we are doing those things. It's just not constant. It's not such a part of our identity. It's not so desperate. We're not reaching out every day. And crucially, we still have boundaries. Crucially, we were doing that when nobody liked the show. <laughs> and it stopped <laughs> yeah, as soon as other people started liking it. Yeah, that helps too. I, and I do think that makes a difference. I get more people who are like, I'm obsessed with Doctor Who, which is still a big show, but it's not It's not friends. I feel like being like connected to something that is so universally liked pretty much that is, weird. You're right. is extra weird. Especially now when like the whole thing is about being a nerd, which is all just fake bullshit anyway. And like connecting with these cult things, like Star Wars, the most popular thing in the world. But at least like (laughs) once upon a time, like 50 years ago was a cult phenomenon or like Dr. Who, right? Um, At at least there's some cachet there of having once been like a small group of dedicated fans or smaller, even though now it's like a Disney mega property. But with something like Friends, which was always a like incredibly (laughs) mainstream yeah that's weird yeah that is really funny and you know it's true there is like star wars is at that point where it's pretty much universally beloved but because of that history and because there is something still nerdy there i do still see those people as kind of a, a subsect like i can kind of get that fanaticism to a degree even though you can buy all of this Star Wars merch at Target yes. and Walmart. You don't have to like seek out anything. You don't have to do any work to be a Star Wars nerd at Wait, this point. I my mind. I like the Friends fans now. I think that that's cool <laughs> to be like, to like devote yourself in a fandom way to like one of the most popular things ever, you know, that never had a cult following. I think that's yeah. cool kind of, because that is weird. Okay, That's very weird. Can we do that? All right, let's think of what else would be like aligned with that like something that is i guess it doesn't even have to still be around friends has been off the air for i don't even know 15 years or something i don't know so something that is hugely popular always was hugely popular i mean i'm trying to think like i'm thinking of stuff right now like new stuff like people who get into um network tv shows now Kind yeah. of like the friends people, but people who like jump into it now when it's less relevant, but still you love season thirteen of NCIS right. or whatever. I, cool. I like that. I think that person is cool and a lot weirder <laughs> than like a Star Wars person who knows all the lore. Because what if you just really love like SVU and and you still love yeah. it and everyone likes it? No one ever like made fun of you for like it. It's like no one was a cult <laughs> thing. There's not even like any kind of fake identity of it being a cult thing. Yeah. Like, you're like, that's your thing. You have a SVU t-shirt. I'm sure that there are SVU like merch things out there. Someone's buying that shit. Yeah. I like that. You got iced tea quotes on a yeah. shirt. You got a free Mariska Hargate right. shirt. I don't know what it's even about. I don't know. Like executive Christopher Miller. Wolf has to be a shirt, I'm sure. And that's a kind of oh. like, then you kind of feel like you're part of a culty thing. But that was never a culty yeah. thing. Yeah, like that. that is kind of fun. Yeah, who goes like on the yeah. NBC.com main page, goes to like store, <laughs> and then like scrolls oh. over to SVU. That's cool, oh man. I like that guy. <laughs> yeah, make me friends with him. I need to now look at the NBC store. I feel like I want to send you something. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
Okay, I'm going to actually see if there is something. So I was going to say, give me your address. Okay, send it to me, though, in Discord, just in case I find yeah, something I good. You. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to buy you, like, a Today and Show tell- or, like, a Good Morning America. Because <laughs> that is cool to me. I like that I level of mug. I actually broke a mug recently. I put it in the freezer and uh, forgot to take it out. So you can give me a mug. I'll give you a shirt. What size shirt do you wear? Uh, small, I guess. Or maybe medium. Okay. All right. So send me your address and I'm going to I'm gonna check out the NBC store, see what we I'm can do. I'm doing exactly the same thing. The first thing when you Google NBC store is mugs. Wow. Okay. I don't even know what shows are on NBC no, at this neither. point. Okay, The Office. The Office is a big one. We missed The Office, which is like the most mainstream thing that still people act like. That's insufferable, though, because of the weird like um, overlap with comedy, maybe. I think the SVU thing, something like NCIS, which you hit on, is way cooler to be obsessed with that. The office. Yeah, because the office, I mean, of course, there are things you could latch on to. I mean, it's got great jokes. It's got great performances. Steve Carell's hilarious. So it's it's more of a legitimate obsession. I, I want someone's obsession to be a little like, huh. Something mainstream, but like so without a point of view. The Office has a point of view that like yeah. thinks of itself as kind of subversive or a social commentary, but that everyone agrees about. And so therefore has like, you know, Chive.com guys are like wearing Office stuff. Yes, absolutely. But no Chive.com guys are probably wearing like NCIS stuff. No, absolutely not. And maybe even, let's see, there's The Good Place, there's Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I think maybe Hollywood Game Night. I, it's not popular enough, though. Ooh, I do like Really. That. Like being into like one of the new, <laughs> like incredibly <laughs> cynical and nothing is happening in those shows. It's just like <laughs> celebrities faking, having fun with each other. Yes, but you're obsessed. Oh, my God. Law and Order SVU, Benson is my hero, white mug. <gasps> I love this. Whoa. Really good. Oh my gosh. All right. That is fantastic. Yeah. I they've got too much merch here. I have to tell you. Amount. They're incredible. Holy shit. Every show is like, do you want something? Like this, 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 this. It's yeah. like, I don't need that many options. Holy, holy fucking shit. I can't even tell you what this is because I feel like I just have to order it for you <laughs> instead of telling you. It's so stupid. Oh my God, this merch is so stupid. All of this merch is so stupid. So I click mugs and at the top it has like the number of products, right? Like the total. It's 225 mm mugs mugs alone on the nbc no some of these places get too deep into merch they've got of course they've got a tumbler and and a shirt and a tote bag but they've also got wine glasses they've got an umbrella they've got an apron they've got a dog food bowl yes of course like a Ib? What the fuck, <laughs> man? Wow. Wow, this is a cool little world here. A cutting board? Do we need this from you today, show? 
I guess like merch is this kind of thing where it's just the overhead is so low or whatever. I mean, the amount, the margin is so high. It's so easy to make one that even if like I guess... guys get mugs for, um, for example, Miami Vice, the NBC reboot of Miami Vice. They have a mug. Fantastic. Here. But like, I guess it's worth it to them to have it on their store, right? Because it's easy to just produce it. Yeah, that's true. If they don't make these things ahead of time, if they make them when someone orders. Because with this t-shirt, I can imagine maybe they do it like some fast turnover digital printing now where it's like made to order. Even then, I don't think, I think they probably have boxes and boxes of these things. They probably do. They must be selling a lot then. That's very upsetting. The World of Dance, not a show I even knew existed. No, not. I mean, I've heard of it. I don't really know what it is. I don't even know if it's, is it a competition one? Is it just showing off mm. different types of dances? I don't know. I'm definitely going to go down a yeah, NBC merch store rabbit hole later. On it, but yeah. <laughs> no, because then you'll become a fan unironically. Yep. It'll just morph. You know, like one day I was thinking of buying like a funny Christmas sweater. And this was before they had the ugly Christmas sweater parties. Okay. It was so it felt a slightly more original to think that was funny, but I considered buying one. And then I thought, but at one point, at what point do I just become the, the lady who wears that? Like at first you buy it cause it's funny, but maybe that's where everyone started. Actually. And then it just became their personality, you know? Damn, man. It's scary. I don't want that to happen. With us to I'm 65% merch. the way there yeah. with like Will and Grace merchandise. So <laughs> That's a good show, though. I tell you. I haven't seen the reboot, but oh, when it was on originally, I thought it was great. This mug must be for the reboot, then. It's not authentic, <laughs> original Will and Grace. <laughs> Okay, I've got one more game for you. I really should just let you go because it's late, but I feel like I I need to ask you a couple of these. So you make art and you really do make incredible shit. Like it is unreal how talented you are. Like, honestly, I'm like really annoyed that you're not just fully pursuing <laughs> yeah. that. You've been really encouraging. I, and I have always told you that I like soak up this praise, but it really like um, one time you told me like I should try to do this for real. And I like really took it to heart. <laughs> and so like these little throwaway comments from friends can be can mean a lot, you know. I am not even throwing them away. I always have to say this to people when I compliment them. It's like, I'm not that nice. I'm not. (laughs) I'm not just going to tell you something's great. You can ask all of our friends in the chat, like how many of them have received praise from me? (laughs) Maybe two. I mean, it's not, I'm not like throwing it out all the time. That just really is how good you are. Mm. I'm, I'm really not that nice. So I think, I don't know if I'm just completely naive because of course I know nothing about what they're looking for at wherever is hiring artists, but I would think they're looking for this like genuine talent. Like, and I feel like you, from what I've seen from you, you can do so many different types of art. You can make stuff that looks like gritty. You can make stuff that looks like fresh stuff that looks new stuff that's more cartoony like uh, you just I've seen a lot of stuff from you like a lot of variation and most of it seems to just be coming from your own 
mind. It's just all your creativity, not like, oh, I copied this thing and did a good job, which would be impressive enough, but it's just like something you thought of. I don't know. But so anyway, because of that, (laughs) I thought of a game that can help you hone some of your skills in like making comics. So I don't want to limit you too much. I want to initially challenge you to, to create three panel comics, just describing them. Of course, I'm not going to have you like take a moment and draw them, but describing what you would do to get these stories across. But you can go up to like six panels if you need to, if it really feels like it needs it. So I want you to recreate famous movies using three to six panels. Okay. So your first one is The Shining. So I need to really think about what would you need to show us to to have us really get The Shining in a comic. And you don't mean like um, a remake of the movie. You mean like telling the same story, but in my own way. Is that right? You know what? Either one. I feel like if you want to get the creativity involved and tell it in your own way, that is fantastic. But it also could be just looking at the movie. What's important about the movie? How would I boil this down? What are the three frames I would show? That's that's kind of easier in terms of like, because especially with a movie like that, which I've seen a bunch of times and really love, there are definitely those iconic things. That's almost too iconic. Mm -hmm. Maybe like... But it can't just be iconic. It has to still tell the story. It has to be for someone who doesn't know it. Not just like a poster, but like uh, beginning, middle, and end. Oh, that's really good. Yes. Shit. That's good. Um, Then it would have to be like them arriving at the empty overlook somehow. I don't know if there's a shot that has like the whole hotel looming over them, but I think maybe there must be in the beginning, like the exterior of the hotel looming over the family. Cause you have to get all the characters into one little panel for the beginnings part. So someone who's never seen it mm-hmm. knows like, here are our people. And then probably like, you would just have to cut way ahead to a shot of Jack Nicholson, like, looking crazy, attacking his wife. Because the middle has to be, like, the conflict. Like, if it's really three panels, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and the end would have to be something in the hedge maze. But because it has to be narrative, it would have to, like, show them escaping Nicholson, right? And from the hedge maze or something. I don't know how that would Oh, happen. so, okay. So this is cool. So I would say it doesn't... Like, it doesn't have to be a specific shot that's in the movie, but that idea of, like, I don't know if there is this moment, but if you could see him somehow get across in the panel that he's, like, dead in the snow, you see the maze, and you see them running out of it, you would get an idea of what happened in there. If it has to be, like, yeah, if it has to convey the story for real. That's a much harder thing than, like, of course, just, like, picking iconic images to convey like a sense of the mood, which many people have done. You know, they're like illustrators, really great ones who do like um, posters, like remake posters for classic movies. Oh yeah, those yeah. All the time, those like, are viral kind of. And some of them are yeah. so brilliant. But this is harder because it's like tell the whole story. I like that. What a good exercise. Speaking of, we were talking about writing exercises. This is a pretty good one. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, all right. I think that's pretty good for The Shining. I do think that gets it across. Uh, how about Dumb and Dumber? <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know if I remember. This one, the I end. don't even know if it can be done. I don't know. I don't know if I remember the end. I remember jokes from it. I saw it like when I was a little kid and then never again, I think. See, but what I would also say is it does not have to be like the beginning, middle, and the end. It just has to be important moments that show a beginning, middle, and end. That show the change that we're supposed to see in the characters or the story or whatever. And in sequence, of course, because that's kind of important for it to be like a a comic that is read, you know, like sequential. I don't know, man. Mm -hmm. I don't think I remember it well enough. You tell me. Yeah, you know what? I don't remember what happens at the end either. I think I think the beginning, probably a good first panel would be something with her losing her uh, luggage at the airport or something. It could be like okay. that. Could be a good beginning. It's like yeah, this is what we're dealing with. <laughs> and then the middle is like. I feel like you need more than three for Dumb and Dumber because you want to get across that they're dumb (laughs) and that may be hard to do while also getting across their friends, they're going on an adventure, maybe seeing that like mutt mobile thing. (sighs) Man, this this is very hard. (laughs) (laughs) You want to get across that they're like dumb and nice. There are heroes. They're like indestructible, like cartoon characters, kind of. Yeah. Hmm. I, I think there was actually a Dumb and Dumber animated series, if I'm remembering right. Is that right? Oh, God. Like, it would kind of make sense. Let me check that. Okay, no. Okay. I got the first and second panels. Whether it's three or more, I think it has to be this. Okay. The first one is the girl... You see the look on her face where you know she's very clearly setting down the briefcase with intention. And it's sneaky and she looks like a spy or something. She's dropping it with intention, right? The next one is Lloyd picking it up and he has the dumb look on his face. You see his stupid teeth. So you get a sense he's an idiot and he's waving her down Like he's going to try to save her. I feel like that has to, this one might need to be a six panel, <laughs> but I feel like we need to get those things across. There's, there's a, a spy or criminal right. element. There's a stupid guy trying to save the day. You would instantly know his motivation and uh, you would get the whole fit, setup of like a yeah. mistaken identity thing or whatever you want to call it. That's pretty good. Yeah. Like, a good writing exercise as well as like, not just drawing, but like comics. Because yeah. it's interesting to distill these things down to like the barest bones of story. I think yeah. that's it. You, the only thing that's important with this stuff is like show the character and their motivation, then show some part mm-hmm. of the struggle itself, and then show the resolution. That's how you can do every movie in three panels. Dumb and Dumber is one yeah. of the hardest ones. But you don't have to be funny in the three panels or six panels, even though the whole point True. of Dumb and Dumber is to carry the jokes. If you're just talking about story, yeah. Then you just, the next one would be them traveling together. It could, you know, show the joy and that both of them are stupid and, <laughs> you know. know. We know. 
then he's got the briefcase maybe still in there. So you get, okay, they're traveling together because he's going to bring the briefcase to her. And then whatever the fuck happens at the end, I assume he just, he brings it to her. It doesn't work out. He doesn't, he doesn't like her. She doesn't like him. I really don't recall. That's going to, but that's going to be. Ventura movies. <sighs> yeah. They all came out so close together. I feel like all the Jim Carrey was so huge for yeah. that six year period yeah. or whatever it was. Yeah. Okay. The next day, Harry and Lloyd are seen walking home on foot because all their purchases were confiscated and their mini bike is broken down. The two unintentionally declined the chance to be oil boys for a group of bikini girls. Okay, typical, but pretty funny. Okay. Yeah, I do remember that. I remember that, but I feel like that's not an important part of the story. We don't need to include that in the our comic, Wikipedia right? That's just an extra does not agree thing. with you. Come on, dude. Come on. It's not important After to the story. Which, Harry tells Lloyd that they will get their break one day. Harry and Lloyd then play a friendly game of tag as they walk back to Rhode Island. Oh, it's like walking off into the sunset together. Yeah, and that's hilarious. They like had a chance to have a ride home and and be with hot girls or whatever, and they turned it down. That is very hilarious. It's funny. funny. I know they were like helping the FBI or that's something exactly like that. Right. I did not remember that. Yeah, but I don't know. Maybe they just caught her doing some crime stuff with her family. I don't know. I don't know, but I think we basically got it. Okay, I'm going to have one more. We're going to do one more. The Lion King. Oh, dude, that's a really good one for this. And that's so plot-driven. This has got to be a more easy one. Um, isn't it famously just like Hamlet or something? It's like one of the most like classic yeah. setups for a story. <sighs> like Prince, Is it Prince Hamlet? Is, is it Othello? It's something. It's something like that. I've definitely seen it more times than I've seen Hamlet, which might be like half of one time because I got bored. <laughs> yeah, I read Hamlet. I didn't see it. Hamlet, I just have to say, Hamlet is so good that I was like, Shakespeare didn't write this because I read <laughs> a lot of I read a lot of his plays and they were not so good. But that one is so good is that good. I googled it. They're both good. Are you crazy? I didn't read Romeo and Juliet. I read um, Midsummer Night's Dream and that much, even though they're supposed to be very funny and stuff. I can't remember. I've read some other dramas though. Most of them are just really boring. They're just really fucking boring. I mean, it is, but like, um, you can tell me that they're like all these important classic stories and all that shit, and like so many stories copy them, but like. By the time you're seven, like all of your favorite animated, like afternoon shows have had They've stories done based it. on that. <laughs> yeah, so it's like yeah, it's really yeah. hard to go back. Doesn't seem that good, but but seriously, then I googled it, and it is a like famous belief that like some people have that belief that he did not write Hamlet, and In I was like, Hamlet. thank you, I'm one of these people now. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just have a hard time imagining someone could write something so good. Totally. And and there's all these theories about the authorship. I believe that I have no problem right. believing that it was like a bunch of guys or, or uh, a woman who didn't. And women. Yeah. Not a yeah. yeah. Okay. For, yeah. It seemed like that was pretty common in the past. For the Lion King, it's gotta yeah. be. Um, 
It might have to be like floor panels or something. It's gotta be mm-hmm. like, yeah, we gotta introduce Simba and Mufasa at some point, maybe at the same time as Scar, like in one panel where everything's fine, but Mufasa's, uh, you know that scene in the cave when Mufasa like menaces Scar, do you remember that? And kind of sends him slinking away. I don't know if you've seen it recently. Oh, no. Anyway, something like that. We got to introduce all three of them in a really pithy and quick way and understand the dynamic, which is very easy because they're visually so recognizable, even if you've never seen it. You could tell, like, this is... You definitely... Like, first panel, I think having, like, the father-son, like, getting that paternal thing, having something... Because, of course, you can say something, too. It doesn't just have to be the art. But it could basically be, like, all of this will be yours one day so that you get a sense of their relationship and also that he's like the king or whatever. So there's that. And then you're probably right. You want to introduce the Scar character. You might be able to then just skip introducing him and just cut right to the uh, time when he kills Mufasa. You know, like yeah. you introduce him separately. Yeah, maybe we don't, maybe it doesn't matter that we know that he's like a relative yeah. or whatever. And then yeah. maybe like uh something about Simba's being banished like with Timon and Pumbaa somehow uh, maybe but how important is no, that it, it do we totally need cut that out, like Tom Bombadil from Lord of the Rings it could totally cut that part out and just have like cut from the death of Mufasa to grown up Simba confronting Scar killing or does he kill Scar I don't even know yeah, it works me. doesn't Scar fall to his death probably I'm guessing Maybe, but it could be that it could be now he is killing you, and you would get he's avenging his oh, dad. I think that that's got to be. Yeah, and you just cut out all the stuff with him falling in love and the comedy relief. Yeah, yeah, because that's something. That's something for the movie, but we don't necessarily yeah. need that to tell the story. That's good. I love it. I prefer this movie. <laughs> no Nala and no Timon and Pumbaa. They get all. Story. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I went to Florida like two years ago and they had warthogs and we got to choose like they had a couple different animals you could have an experience with at this zoo. It was like, do you want to meet like alligators up close and personal or warthogs or I want to say there was uh, slots <laughs> and I was like. A warthog sounds cool, right? Yeah. So I went in there and the lady's like, do you have any questions about warthogs? And I was like, that's what Pumbaa is, right? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) I literally didn't ask any other Did you meet the warthog? I met the warthogs. They were just... I mean, they're just kind of stinky pig guys. Yeah. They, you know, exactly what you expect, but they're cute. You got to pet them and stuff, cute. you know? I think they're pretty, like, dangerous. Like, the wild ones are very disruptive and dangerous. I think, like... I could see it. Man, that's weird that you... I guess of, all, of those three things, I'm sure the warthog is the least popular by far, right? Like, people yes. want to have the thrill of meeting, like, a scary dinosaur creature, like a crocodile, like an alligator, or they want to see the cute, cuddly thing, the weird-looking sloth. Yeah. Who is meeting the warthog except for you? I know. I thought the same thing. I was like, this definitely has to be a shock to the staff here. They're going to be talking about us for months. <laughs> the Lion King must have just been a huge boon to that zoo. The, the poor warthog yeah. was just like, you know, laboring in obscurity for years before Lion King launched him into the fire. So true. <laughs> so true. 
nobody cared about warthogs before then. All right. So we're done for today. I mean, is that shocking? We went over two hours. I'm getting terrible with this. I'm yeah, trying this to keep them an so, hour and it doesn't work. It's so hard for you to like make it. <laughs> Are you going to edit? No, no. You think I don't edit anymore because when I edit, I make myself miserable and then I just don't do it because it takes me to edit a two hour podcast would probably take me four to six hours. I'm terrible at it. I take no. So you know what? This is good enough. Let's hope we don't sound like fools. And <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Dude, I'm sorry to our friends. <laughs> Who you know what? Whoever wants to listen, they can they can stop halfway, pretend that they're done, or or they'll be enjoying and they'll want to listen the whole way. I think it was very good. I think you were a great guest. Uh, we had a lot of interesting conversations. I would want to listen to the yeah, whole thing. It was fun but... talking to. I mean, I like being here. I don't know if I if it weren't if it weren't <laughs> one of our close friends. Well, who, come on, who's listening to it anyway? Besides your close friends, it's yeah, it's only my close friends and you know my husband and uh, that's that's it. It was a good excuse to like <laughs> catch up. That's for sure. Yeah, fun. definitely. Yeah, I had so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'll talk to you like probably <laughs> in chat immediately. Yeah, I'll talk to you in chat. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye, Josh.